The Red Light District by Robert P. Fitton. Episode 4, Showdown with Charlie Stevenson. Sleepyhead, where is everybody? Pushing back her long blonde hair as she headed for the bathroom. Sleeping! Susan walked into the bathroom and screamed in sheer fright upon reading the note. Mother! Mother! Her mother rushed in the room. Susan, what is it? She handed the note to her mother. She read the note and then tightened her brow. Barbara quickly punched in the number for the Redstone Register. After one ring, the voice of Ben Simpson came over the earpiece. Hello, Register. Ben, we've got a big problem here. I have a note from Joe. A note? Let me read it to you. It says, Dearest Barbara, I cannot rest until I have completed my mission, and even then, I don't know if I'll ever be the same. I must find this man Stevenson and bring him to justice. Tell the children that I'm on that assignment for Ben. I love them and I love you more than words can say. Love, Joe. All right, I'm going to call Jensen right now, and I'll be right over. Half an hour later, Ben Simpson was talking on the kitchen telephone with Frank Jensen. Everyone had dressed and were sitting silently in the living room. Why haven't they found this Stevenson yet? What about the cop, Hicks, from L.A.? asked Ben as he gritted his teeth. Look, Ben, this guy Stevenson's got mafioso connections, said Jensen. What? I should have known, he added as he walked toward the sliding glass door and stepped outside. Mafioso, do you realize what the hell could happen to Joe if he messes with those guys? Why haven't they found Stevenson? Not in his office, and his secretary hasn't seen him for days, or so she says. He answered. You mean that address was actually legitimate? Asked the confused Ben. I don't believe it either, Ben. I'm going to take the first flight to L.A. from Temple City, said Ben. What are you, nuts? Come on, Ben, just sit tight. What the hell good are you going to be doing running around L.A.? Questioned the sheriff. Guess you're right, Pudge, but you will call. reassured Jensen. All right, Frank, goodbye. He moved back inside the house. Slowly, with thoughts of the mafia in his head, he walked into the living room. They all sat placidly and awaited the news. Well, uh, Frank has just assured me they're tracking this Stevenson guy down. They've already questioned his secretary, and they'll have him at the police station before Joe even gets into town. Is Daddy in trouble, Mommy? asked Donnie. No, Donnie, your father's on a trip to Los Angeles for me, said Ben as he looked into the boy's teary eyes. Can we go outside and play? Yeah, go, go, said Barbara in a shaky voice as she motioned him outside the room. Look, the only thing we can do is wait. I'm sure Joe's all right. He's probably already having second thoughts about this whole thing. I don't believe that, Ben, and neither do you. If Stevenson was capable of doing what he did to Harvey... Then he'll do the same thing to Joe. Okay, well, I think Joe can take care of himself. I really do. Polanski had slept for over seven hours. When he awoke, he took a warm shower. He thoroughly rested and changed back into his jeans and sweatshirt. The lady at the desk, still watching television, gave him directions to a fast food restaurant. And as it was early evening, he returned to his motel room. He carried two white bags filled with hamburgers, french fries, and a turnover, 
as well as a cup of coffee. As he sat on the bed, he wondered whether to call home. He wondered if the police had captured Stevenson. If Stevenson was still at large, then they might set out for the motel. He rejected that idea and ate the food as he stared out the window. As he watched the early evening sun disappear behind the advancing clouds, he could hardly fathom that he really was in Los Angeles. 24 hours before, he had watched the setting sun from his study, several hundred miles behind him. He had doubts. Why had he come this far? Suddenly, he questioned whether he should have come to the city at all. Just as abruptly, his thoughts vanished as the vivid image of Harvey came into his head. He spoke Stevenson's numbers out loud. He sat on the bed and called the first number. He held the phone with his shoulder while he ate one of the hamburgers. The line was busy. He chewed the morsels and dialed the second number. The line rang as he sipped on his coffee. A woman answered the phone. Stevenson Associates, good evening. Polanski, still in the midst of swallowing, tried to speak. Uh, uh, Mr. Stevenson, please. Who is this, Mario? She asked. Yeah, said Polanski with the same coffee-filled, raspy voice. Where the hell have you been, Mario? Never mind. Charlie's in trouble with the cops. He wants to leave the country for a while until things cool down. I know he'd want to talk with you first. He's going over to Vinny's office on the 20th floor of the Occidental at 8. You got that? Yep, answered Polanski as he hung up the telephone and hoped that she really thought he was Mario. People reacted differently in stressful situations, he thought. Possibly, she really thought he was Mario. It was close to 7 o'clock when Polanski opened the door to the room. The heat of the city's day subsided, and the air became cooler. He locked the door and walked to his car with one of the white bags in hand. He backed up and drove slowly by the office. The blue neon sign was more prominent now that the clouds had darkened the surroundings. He let the car idle as he pulled back the emergency brake and went into the office. How you doing, Mr. Polanski? asked the woman as she rocked in the rocking chair. She started to get up, but Polanski stopped her. No, no, please sit down, Mrs. Baranowski. Actually, I'm just looking for some directions. Ain't those contestants crazy? She asked as she watched the game show on the television. What do you want to know? Well, I've got an appointment at the Occidental building at night. Uh, I haven't got the foggiest idea. You got a pencil and a piece of paper? She asked, but her eyes never left the set. Why, no. Over on the counter. Polanski retreated and then leaned against the panel wall as she spoke. You go out to the gas station, take a right, go five blocks down, take another left, another six, no, seven, she said, shaking her head, seven blocks down, and then it's on your right. You can't miss it, or maybe you can if you don't look up. <laughs> take a right, five blocks, take a left, it's seven blocks on the right. You got it, honey. You look at that guy in the clown suit. <laughs> well, goodbye, Mrs. Baranowski. You've been very helpful. She turned away from the set for the first time and looked directly at the unshaven Polanski. Just make sure you shave before you check out tomorrow morning. You're a handsome lad, and uh, you'd look much better without that growth. <laughs> she said, good night. Good night, he said as he stroked his whiskers and shut the clanging bell door behind him. He followed her instructions exactly and parked his car about a block from the building, but on the other side of the street. It had started to sprinkle, and there were only a few people on the city sidewalks. He took the gun out of the glove compartment. He placed it in the white bag and checked his watch. Twenty past seven. 
He opened the car door, leaving it purposely unlocked, put the big bag under his arm and ran into the spitting rain. He crossed the street and looked up at the tall building. Many of the office lights were visible, but the top was hazy. As the rain pelted his face now, he moved up to the entrance of the building. He stood below the overhanging and looked inside as he caught his breath. Black-haired security guard sat in front of a small desk reading a paperback book. In front of the guard was a directory of the various occupants of the building listed in black and white. His only chance to pass the guard was to find the office of the man Vinny on the directory. He rushed up to the revolving doors and walked briskly into the lobby. He attracted the attention of the guard who looked up from his book and stood immediately as Polanski headed for the directory. The bag with the revolver inside was dry and he held it like a picnic lunch as he walked around the directory for several minutes searching for Vinny's office. Hey, can I help you, sir? called the guard. He seemed more upset that Polanski had interrupted his reading rather than Polanski could be breaking into the building. Polanski frantically scanned the listings for the 20th floor. No, I just have to bring this coffee upstairs to Mr. He paused as he read the name on the directory. Guard set the book down and walked around the desk. Polanski grew nervous now as the guard walked toward the directory. And just who might you be looking for? Polanski checked the list of names. Well, Mr. Uh, Mr. Uh, Prendergast called and ordered some coffee and donuts, but I can't remember what floor he was on, lied Polanski. Okay, let me look, said the guard as he adjusted his wire-rimmed glasses and read the names. I heard that name before, he said with a chuckle. Ah, here it is, 20th floor, suite 2007, he reported as he genuinely seemed pleased he could help Polanski. Well, thank you very much. You may have saved my job, said Polanski. The elevators are right over there. Straight ahead, said the man as he smiled. Thanks again, added Polanski as he walked up to the elevators. For a few seconds, he really thought he was going to deliver coffee to Mr. Prendergast on the 20th floor. Glad to be of assistance, said the man as he sat down and resumed his reading. As Polanski waited for the elevator, he looked at the guard still reading at the desk. With a sigh of relief, the elevator door slid open, he entered, and pushed down the round knob that was marked 20. The knob lit up and the door closed. Soon he felt the pressure of the rising floor against his feet as the tiny car rose high above the city. He was doing the right thing, he thought. Capturing Stevenson was not the logical thing, but it was the right thing. It was the act he had to perform. He was driven by an inner resolve to be face to face with the man who had slain his friend. The door opened and he stepped onto the 20th floor. It was dimly lit, and in front of him were a series of glassed-in offices that apparently belonged to Prendergast Incorporated. The elevated door shut behind him as he walked across the gray carpet. He glanced at his watch and saw that he had 15 minutes before Stevenson would arrive. He maneuvered himself around the side of the corridor, in back of the wall, and in front of the doorway to the staircase. As he removed the gun from the bag, he comprehended for the first time the full destructive power of the weapon. What if Stevenson had a gun? He must have a gun. Polanski's hands began to shake. His heart beat swiftly as he stalked Charlie Stevenson. The minutes passed like long, trying days, and Polanski was soaked in perspiration. He looked at his watch and saw that it was past the designated hour for Stevenson to arrive. He looked around the corner at the elevator, but the doors were tightly closed. It was possible he had been set up. Charlie Stevenson might not be one to miss appointments, especially when they were in his own best interest. He finally emerged from the elevator doors. 
His black umbrella was folded by his side and his gray trench coat splattered with raindrops. He took off his hat, walked onto the 20th floor. Freeze! yelled Polanski as he held the gun right in front of Stevenson with both hands. Stevenson stopped and followed his instructions. Okay, drop whatever you've got in your hands and raise them up slowly, said Polanski in a high-pitched voice as his hands began to shake. Stevenson dropped his belongings and raised his hands. Okay, now turn around, ordered Polanski. Look, officer, I didn't... He paused as he saw Polanski in the gray sweatshirt and jeans. You a cop? he asked. My name's Joe Polanski. Does that ring any bells, you creep? yelled Polanski as he kept the gun trained on Stevenson. Hey, pal, look, I've, uh, hey, if you've lost some dough with me, we can make an adjustment. I'm, I'm going right down there to meet one of my associates right now. I can pay you cash on the spot. Harvey Stoner. I live in Redstone, Arizona, you miserable son of a bitch, said Polanski, who moved closer. Stevenson's face turned from its beaming red glow to a powdered shade of white. Look, pal, there's uh, been some uh, mistake. Harvey Stoner was a friend of mine, and you snuffed out his life, said Polanski as he brought the gun against Stevenson's neck. Stevenson peered down the barrel as he spoke. Look, I sold some guys some phony land, but that's all I did. I didn't kill anybody. Don't kill me. Come on, please don't kill me. I'm not going to kill you, you scum, said Polanski, his nose tightened with wrinkles converging at the top. Well, thank you so much, Mr. Polanski. I'm glad you understand that I didn't kill anybody. Shut up, screamed Polanski as he pushed the barrel deeper into Stevenson's skin. I'm taking you in, Stevenson. We'll let the police handle it now, he smiled as he knew he had captured his friend's killer. Okay, get over there in front of the elevator and push the button. Hey, what about my things? asked Stevenson as he moved in front of Polanski. Never mind your things, said Polanski. You know, if there's a trial and you've harassed me, they'll get me off on a technicality. I got rights too, buddy, he said. All right, keep your hands in the air, ordered Polanski as he continued to point the gun at Stevenson. He slowly moved toward the articles on the floor. He squatted down the gun still pointed with his eyes directly on his prisoner. He picked up Stevenson's hat, then reached for the umbrella with his gun hand. Stevenson swung his right leg around quickly, and the toe of his white boot connected squarely with Polanski's wrist. The gun tumbled across the gray carpet as Polanski grabbed his wrist in pain. Stevenson dashed for the doorway. Polanski, still holding his wrist, crawled along the carpet and picked up the gun. He got up and ran to the door. Above him, he could hear footsteps shuffling on the dusty cement stairs, and he hurried upward with the gun pointed. Polanski reached the roof, but the door was locked. Damn it, Stevenson, open this door. Where are you going to run? He walked back to the edge of the stairway, and with a running start, he crashed against the door. Polanski was bounced back to the cement. As he winced, the door slowly opened with a squeaky melody. He saw Stevenson across the rain-pelted roof, dodging the air ducts and various electrical apparatus. The fog swirled around the roof as Stevenson slowed his pace. He stopped and looked around at the light, shining through the haze. Stevenson lay on his stomach. He was protected by a dip in the roof. Come on, Stevenson, it's useless. Give up. There was no answer from the gray-haired man as he still remained on his stomach. Stevenson, I'll throw down the gun, yelled Polanski. Come on out and we'll straighten out this mess. 
Polanski saw the salesman stand, and he took the gun out of his pocket. I never try and fight anything. I know I'm not going to win, Mr. Polanski, said Stevenson as he walked over to him. Polanski turned around and held the gun against Stevenson's backbone. Thought you said you were going to drop the gun. I lied. Somebody started firing a gun and Stevenson's hands rose to his stomach as he buckled over and blood spurted onto the water-laden pebbles. Polanski flung the gun out of his hand. His first impulse was to run and he sprinted to his right. He saw bullets bouncing off the water and pebbles around him. His heart pounded. He dove onto his belly, scraping his palms on the pebbles as he neared one of the air ducts. He heard somebody splashing through the puddles. and put his legs into the air duct and fell into the darkness below. The duct seemed to be descending in a circular manner. Round and round he went till his feet finally crashed through a grill several floors below. He hit the floor with a thud and his body slid across the linoleum, landing at the base of a desk. It had all happened so suddenly. The room spun as he shook his head back to reality. Slowly, he staggered over to the door and opened it. The corridor outside was similar to that of the 20th floor. He held his shoulder, which felt like a bad toothache, and shuffled toward the elevator and pushed the button. The elevator rose into place and the doors opened. Polanski pushed the button for the second floor. As the elevator slowed and the doors opened, he rounded the corner and headed for the staircase. When he reached the bottom of the stairs, he looked through the small, wire-meshed glass square in the door. He saw police officers standing with their guns drawn as they awaited backup units. There was a taller man next to the entrance, and the other was stationed by the elevators. Plansky debated whether to give himself up, even though he was not guilty of anything. Then the elevator doors opened. The policeman turned as two men in dark suits emerged from the elevator and shot him dead. His partner fired at the men, but he too was hit and fell to the floor. Other men ran toward the street entrance and out the door. Polanski saw them turn down the street as they ran. Now was his chance to leave. He thought about reporting the incident, but he was too scared and opened the door to the lobby. His sneakers squeaked across the emptiness of the room as he passed the dead men on the floor. Outside, a long, black limousine sped away from the building. He pushed through the revolving door and ran into the rain. Polanski turned to his left, away from the gathering crowd down the street, and he held his shoulders as he ran forward. There he goes, shouted a man who saw Polanski leaving the building. Someone call the police. Polanski knew he was in trouble now. He would be hunted, and he had no plausible explanation. He trotted as fast as he could and disappeared into the rainy night. Join us next time for another exciting episode of The Red Light District by Robert P. Fitton. Presented by Fitton Theatre of the Words.